Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. A day after the title race was blown wide open. Well, one team remained top and the other team remained in eighth place. But it was an exciting game, nonetheless, between Manchester United and Chelsea. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was a good game. Uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. Even though... Um, yeah, things didn't really uh, didn't really catch fire in the way that... Well, in fairness, they never really do. I mean, Jose Mourinho away matches against um, big rivals are very rarely... Even his great performance last year, his great performance, Chelsea's great performance against Liverpool, mm. that trip, that literally tripped Liverpool up in their, uh, in their quest for the title. And what, <laughs> it was admirable rather than amazingly exciting. There's yeah, always something a little bit reptilian about the way Chelsea uh, do these things. It's it's a little bit uh, calculated and cold-blooded. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day... Well, I wasn't cold-blooded enough this time. They're the crocodile, you're the wildebeest. Yeah. You know, you're a move. You know what I mean? You're trying to get to the other side of the water. You're the one who's got to do it. You're the, you're the home team. It's up to you to, to take the initiative. You're a move. We're going to talk about that uh, plenty today, but let's get into Kennedy's report on sport. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess um, the first thing we'll we'll touch on today is, uh, I mean, there's quite a lot of big matches over the weekend, um, but there is this uh, issue with a big match that's coming up in a few weeks' time, uh, Ireland away to Scotland at Celtic Park, which is a hugely attractive international game. One of the biggest we've played in a long time, I'd say. I yeah. mean, from the point of view of people thinking, well, it goes to a match. Glasgow's not too far away. It's Ireland playing at Celtic Park. Uh, which has a resonance, I suppose, for a lot of people, a lot of Irish football fans. Should be quite a convivial atmosphere, I would say. You, you'd hope so. You'd hope so. Maybe not so much for Aidan McGeady and James McCarthy, but it's all, it's all just banter, I suppose. <laughs> at the, you know, at, on, on some level, one hopes. Uh, but of course, this is and, and and you know, having made a decent start to our qualification campaign, maybe interest in the team is spiking a little bit. Problem is, of course, that although Celtic Park holds sixty thousand um, uh, people, only three thousand, or maybe three thousand two hundred of those have been given to the FAI to allocate to Irish supporters. 
uh, and reportedly 10,000 applications have been received. So some people are going to go home empty-handed. <clears throat> what the uh, supporters group, you boys in green, is asking is, how has it happened that quite such a high proportion of the people who regularly attend away fixtures, and we're talking about three or 400 people maybe as the hardcore of this, you know, this, Ireland go and play in Georgia, there's not a huge... You can see there's Ireland fans in the stadium, but it's not as though there's 3,000 Ireland fans. You know what I mean? Um, maybe 10% of that number. Ireland playing Kazakhstan is, you know, Ireland fans are making the journey. And uh, you boys in green are saying that a huge proportion of these people haven't, have failed to get tickets. So having gone to um, match after away match after away match after away match, uh, they find that when the big one comes along... The big, juicy, uh, away to Scotland, sort of exciting Celtic Park, wow, big match comes along. They're not getting the tickets. Yeah. So you can imagine there's a bit of annoyance there. Now, we've put, we've sent a few questions to the FAI about this now, and you'd have to hear what the FAI have to say about it, and, and obviously it being a bank holiday today. I mean, the supporters were a bit angry that a lot of them received their uh, email telling them they weren't getting tickets uh, last Friday evening after sort of after office hours just starting on the bank holiday weekend. It can seem like a long time, I don't know if you're looking for an answer. I remember my power was cut off once on the Thursday, just going into a bank holiday weekend. Nobody was available to come and switch it back on on the Friday. So uh, so it was, a, it was, you know, a return to the 19th century for me for, <laughs> for a period of about five days. I mean, it can seem like a long time when you're waiting on an answer. So this isn't just the case that there are 10,000 ticket requests, 3,000 tickets available... 7,000 people are going to miss out. 7,000 people are, are going to miss out of those who applied, but, um, okay, so what What the fans on you boys in green have done is um, one of them has, has created a, a kind of a form where people can um, put in, you know, who they are, what games they've been to, and, what, you know, if, if they've missed out on tickets, sort of you can go and input the details of what um, games you've been to, uh, and so they can kind of build a picture using this information of who... Uh, who's missing out. So, I mean, um, I was talking to one of the guys there who, who said um, that so far, and this is the guy who, who had created the form, he was explaining basically people with over 20 away trips in the last four years have, have not got a ticket. 30 plus supporters with 100% records for away games in last campaign rejected. 70 plus supporters with 75% records for competitive away games in the last four years rejected. So, I mean, these are guys who, who are going to game after game, you know, Ireland So even when there are only maybe eight or 900 fans, they're among them. Now, they, they put out a statement where they, where they basically said that the, the problem here is whatever about this game, and obviously the game itself, missing out on a, on a game like this when you've been to, say you've been to Georgia or you've been to Kazakhstan, mm. you know, you, maybe you feel entitlement. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a case, maybe the FAI don't look at it that way. I mean, uh, maybe we, we might look at it and go, well, the principle of, of away fans should get regular attenders at away games should get preference for oversubscribed games. Seems like a reasonable principle to me. But the FAM may have a different principle. Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that we've asked. Maybe they, maybe it's uh, about uh, home games or home season tickets or maybe there's some other criteria. We don't know until we hear back from them. Um, but what they, what is clear is that there is no real system in place to, to deal with this type of situation. Maybe it's because Ireland don't often have an oversubscribed away game. But when you do have one, um, Scotland, for instance, have an equivalent system where fans who have been to away games get credits for each of the games that, they're, that they yep. go to. And so when a, a big one comes along, they, the ones who are going to all the games do manage to get those tickets. The FBI, according to you boys in green, 
this proposal was put to them. They, it was rejected by the FAI. This is from their statement. He assured representatives a robust system would be implemented. We were disappointed to note this game has shown this is clearly not the case. So, uh, really, until we hear back from the FAI about what's going on here, um, it's hard to say more, but uh, we'll probably return to this on Thursday. Yeah, we'll let you know once the FAI get back. In the meantime, um, there was uh, Manchester City, or Manchester United, Manchester United against Chelsea. So, Jose Mourinho's second trip to Manchester this season, second late equaliser conceded, second unbeaten trip to Manchester. Six points clear. Uh, in view of Manchester City's win over, or Manchester City's defeat against West Ham. <laughs> it's all right, we're getting there. <laughs> it's a bank holiday. It's, uh, the brains are all working a small bit more Yeah. Um, but was this maybe a little bit... Um, a friend of mine was comparing... Um, uh, Joseph Mourinho to Dick Cheney carrying a bunker, carrying in a bunker on 9-11 pointlessly um, in the last 15 minutes of that match uh, as, as really a non-existent threat from Manchester United took shape um, and nothing nothing really seemed to happen and yet Chelsea invited them sitting back and back that's what Mourinho does in a, in a away game when he's winning he would much rather concede a goal an equaliser in the circumstances in which they did rather than chasing the game trying to make it 2-0 if they conceded a goal while they were trying to score a second, he would be a lot more unhappy. Um, he he resisted, he <laughs> showing the usual Christ-like for, forbearance, Jose Mourinho refrained from blaming the referee, mm. filled out, simply saying that uh, the red card, I saw that coming. Uh, now, Mourinho is not the only one who saw that red card coming, uh, given the sheer number of yellow cards that Chelsea were accumulating with foul after foul after foul. And it was it was obvious that it was eventually going to happen if they you know if the match went on long enough. Uh, and it was unlucky for them that it was Ivanovic, one of their most important players to, to defend set pieces, who missed that crucial last um, free gave gave away the free kick, got sent off, and wasn't there to defend it when Manchester United got their equaliser. Um, I don't want to speak about the referee. If I speak, you know, I will speak with my heart. And get into trouble, says uh, Mourinho. Who overall, I think, although uh, I saw, I think it was Graham Sooner saying he's angry. You know, he's covering it up well, but he's angry. I didn't think he was really that angry, actually. I thought he was quite satisfied. Um, maybe he was a bit disappointed, given that it looked like they were going to win. But I think he's quite capable of sitting back and saying, well, it's a disappointing result, given that I thought we were going to win with two minutes to go, but... I think he only, it's actually an okay result. Uh, he only seems to get uh, this could be a total generalization here, but he he seems to, the, what seems to annoy him and make him angry are personal grudges he has with people. He gets annoyed. He used to get really annoyed with Rafael Benitez. Mm. He used to get really annoyed with Arsene Wenger. That seems to have mm, fizzled out a small bit, maybe. But back when Arsenal were a threat, well, I mean, it fizzled. I mean, they were they were kind of. Oh, what am I talking about? each other in the most recent match. What yeah, am I talking about? Yeah, it hasn't out. fizzled out. It's fizzled in, Ken. Yeah. It's, it's full of fizz. The, the, the fizzle is absolutely... Uh, fizzling away. Fizzling away there, yeah. So it seems like what the, the bits where he gets genuinely angry when he... There's other times where he probably feigns the anger and wants to put pressure on officials and those kind of things, but it seems to be just personal vendettas are what really... I suppose it's the same with all of us, Ken. Mm. Uh, people who we don't like and don't like us... There will get us. Uh, get our People who going. publicly belittle us, question our ability, suggest that we only win trophies because we work for a billionaire who buys uh, all the best players. They're the people Jose Mourinho gets really angry with. Rafael Benitez and Arsene Wenger would both fall into that category, I think. Uh, not Louis van Gaal, though, who 
he loves leaving hell. At least this was the line that Jeff Shreves was was heavily pushing. The love story between Louis Van Hal and Joseph Mourinho. I don't know if you saw the... But I saw the pre-match interview the, yeah, when yeah. Uh, Mourinho stopped halfway through and said a really meek hello to somebody. Mm. Oh, that was Louis. Yeah. You love Louis, don't you? You, you love Louis. I mean, it's a, it's a special, intimate relationship that you have. It's a really special relationship, isn't it, Jose? Uh, and eventually, Jeff Shreves, he couldn't bear to keep Jose apart from, from Lionel any longer. So he stood aside. He said, you know, I'll let you go to him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the camera turned around. I, I wasn't expecting this. And followed Mourinho. I mean, it just honestly looked like a, a, a parodic setup, you know. Mourinho walks over a few paces to where Van Hal is standing, stern-faced, and they embrace and slap each other numerous times, almost like a pair of sea lions hugging each other. They're flapping each other with their flippers um, in a show of male mutual male dominance. Uh, Van Hal, of course, has the advantage in those situations being so much taller than Mourinho, you know? But uh, I think Mourinho got in a few extra slaps uh, just to show that, although, uh, although shorter, he was full of fight. And, you know, the, and then Van Hal came over and was staring at Shreves, who, who kept asking these questions about, you know, the, how much they, they, they were friends with each other. And Van Hal just was, after, after each question, just staring at Shreves for a couple of seconds to impress that, why are we talking about this? And then said, yes, he's, you know, he's a, he's a lovely man. You know, our family's going on very well. And not, not feeding it at all, but, if, you know. Yeah. Anyway, one all, they, sh- they share the spoils. We'll Which talk is more great. about that with Jonathan a little while, I think, will we? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, uh, the the reason why it wasn't a bad result really for either side, well, I mean, you know, Vangal actually seemed to be a bit annoyed with it. He was saying, that the, the, at least we're taking the games to the end. At least when the scoreline is bad, we, we're believing that we can score. And that's good. And that is progress for Manchester United, considering where they've been at for a while. You know, you did get the sense maybe... Chelsea were rocking a little bit in the last few minutes. Just, you know, uh, just as it was against West Brom, you know, less formidable opposition. Uh, the problem, of course, in each case being that they're already a goal down going into, yep. go, going into the last few minutes. But still, you know, it's, it's better than it has been, I think. Um, but the reason why both sides maybe would sell for a point in the end is that Manchester City uh, lost again. And uh, Sam Allardyce... Had so much to say about this. Uh, first of all, get, got a text from Mourinho thanking him. Uh, Jose has just texted me to say, well done, big man, says Sam. This shows how important it was for him. Never mind for us. Um, he goes to Manchester United knowing his team will go and perform at their best. And if they win, it makes the gap even bigger. But the result wasn't for him. It was for us <laughs> and everyone at West Ham. Uh, he goes on to talk really a lot about this uh, thing. One thing that we'll return to, uh, I think, with Jonathan Wilson, who was there also was this quote, there are two types of coaches. There's coaches like me who weigh up the opposition and ask the team to adjust. Fergie was similar. Jose is similar. Then there's Arsene, who won't adjust. There's Brendan, who looks like he won't adjust. There's Manuel Pellegrini, who looks like he won't adjust. Even what? The, he, yeah, he won't adjust even in the Champions League. <laughs> he seems to favour what he's got. City are quite open. Their philosophy is different to ours. Ours, again, being Sam Allardyce, Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho. Ours is more about who we're playing against. Their philosophy is more, we always play this way, and they won't change. They carry on doing the same thing. That's why you can beat them. What? <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> also, he's totally wrong about Ferguson. 
If it, the, Ferguson's players all say he didn't worry about the opposition. Mm. Ferguson just made you believe that you were the best. He didn't worry too much about detailed tactical analysis of the other team or I, even set pieces. I think that Ferguson changed in the second half of his career at Manchester United. I think, in, I think that was very much the way he was in the first half of his time there. And then the turning point was maybe that losing to Real Madrid that time. The 3-2 defeat to Real Madrid in 2000 um, when Keane scored the own goal. It was, it was a bit of a... It was it was a kind of he decided after then we were too open, you know we tried we thought we could just blow teams away by being ourselves, but actually we're going to need a little bit more. And so he started to it took him a while maybe to get it right. He brought in Keros and the team was a little bit slower in you know more defensive, um, better in possession, or more careful in possession, and started playing you know Park Ji Sung to nullify specific you know he would do things like that. So I think he I think he developed in that way. Yeah. Although I do think he started out very much as the, you know, this isn't about them, it's about us type of manager, um, which he probably was for the majority of his career. Uh, but the other uh, big game on this weekend was obviously the one in Madrid, uh, Barcelona or Real Madrid against Barcelona, a game which, as we were talking to Sid last week, just really the biggest all-star game I've ever seen. Oh, honestly, every player, almost every player, I mean, there's a couple of little exceptions, you know, I mean, Jeremy Matthew is looking around thinking, <laughs> how did I end up here? What's, you know, but almost every player in every team, on each team is a, is a star. So everybody is sort of, this is really, this, this is really where it's at in terms of football in the world for the next two hours. Um, and Suarez did start, um, which wasn't, uh, I don't think a surprise given that this was the game he's been working towards for months. Yeah. And played quite uh, quite well for the first little while in the position on the right wing, which it's going to be interesting if they leave him out there because I think it's going to be tough for him. I mean, we were also what came out over the over the weekend was a couple of extracts from his new book, which I think is out later this week, possibly it's next week. Um, but he he talks about a couple of things. I mean, I don't know if you saw on um, the interview that he did with Simon Hattonstone on the Guardian um, website. There was a little video of it. No. Uh, um, he got a little bit angry during the interview. Not angry as such. He just be, eventually became uh, exasperated with the interview. He was being asked things like, do you think there's something wrong with you? And uh, might you be on the autistic spectrum? Really? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and also, I think at one point, uh, the interviewer made a sort of jokey reference to how, how pretty his wife was, which I've ah. got, got to say, <laughs> given, given the way that... Luis Suarez speaks about his, his family and his intense devotion to them. It might be one of the last things that I would say, your, your wife's pretty fit. Seems a bit out of order. I don't think I'd put it that way. Just, just too much risk of him taking it the wrong way, I think. You know, it's, with Suarez, he is a volatile character. As we, as we are. Anyway, he walked away and, and there was a scene a bit like, do you remember when Gordon Brown was out doing that meet and greet and got into the car and didn't realize his, <laughs> yeah. his, his microphone was still on. So I go, Who, whose idea was it to put me with that woman? Yeah. Awful bigoted woman. <laughs> Just some, some voter. Yeah. <laughs> he hadn't enjoyed speaking to that bigoted woman. Suarez had a moment of it like this. I'm not sure if he, uh, maybe he just didn't hear his microphone still. He goes, he's speaking in Spanish, evidently, but the, the subtitles are there saying, they've asked me about the bite 38,000 times. Never again. Never again. And you, you're watching this thing. Well, I have a certain amount of sympathy. He, you know, he's, he, he does get asked about the bite a lot. On the other hand, he never talks much about it or hasn't really explained it in any, in any sort of thorough way, has he? 
So, the, you know, well, the answer isn't there. The question is arguably going to be asked. Yeah. Uh, he talks a little bit about it in this extract from this book, which is coming out. And, you know, he doesn't really, he just sort of describes it as a switching off. Like a, a set, he feels under the pressure. He feels a sense of responsibility for the result. In the Uruguay-Italy match, for instance, he, he talks about how he missed a chance not long before the bite. He felt this kind of frustration rising and it's kind of like an instant thing that he does. You know, some people smash guys' noses across their face. You know, Tassotti did that to Luis Enrique in the World Cup and he got he got banned for less games than I got banned for, you know? Because people just think biting is disgusting. Even though nobody gets hurt. <laughs> this is the point he's making, you know? Uh, but, uh, that you know, he's been to therapy and so on. But he says, the problem is this switching off also happens when I do something brilliant on the pitch and I don't want to lose that. I've, sco- I've scored goals and later struggled to understand how I managed to score them. So there's something about the way I play that's unconscious, for better or worse. I don't want to lose this spontaneity or intensity. So he talks about, he went to see a psychologist after he bit Ivanovic, who talked to him for two hours and he's like, yeah, it was real helpful. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Did I want to see him again? No. Because I don't want to talk myself into this sort of chilled out zen state where everything is in balance and I'm just sort of floating serenely like a swan across the surface of the match not actually doing because that's not me you know it's, it's, a, it's a player saying about himself if you took that little bit of devil out of him he wouldn't be the same player and that's what Lewis Suarez apparently believes. It is an interesting take on the psychology of sports people. It's a more thought out idea uh, version of the idea that you can't take the devil out of Eric Cantona Vinnie Jones well you actually can't take the devil out of Vinnie Jones I don't 100% agree with that in a very real sense Luis Suarez is channeling the devil onto the field of play Satan himself acts through this little man Uh, I don't know if it's Satan or just some demonic force some some spontaneous creative force of nature he's merely the conduit between this dimension and that and you know to attribute these acts to him whether it be you know a 45 yard dipping volley against Norwich or three bites of, of human men, uh, would, would be to misunderstand what's really going on. But the one other thing I, I want to mention with relation to this um, is that uh, I don't think his explanation of the Evra situation is going to play very well. Sticking to his guns, didn't say anything bad. Damien Kamali told him the wrong thing. Not that I want to blame Kamali. Essentially that he said, uh, Por qué, negro, to Evra, meaning why, negro. Which of course doesn't have the same connotation as we've as we've heard a billion billion times, uh, and that uh, Kamali came to him after the game and said, "What? They're complaining about racism. You know what? What, what did you say to him?" And so I was like, "Well, what are you talking about?" And he goes, "You know, you said something to ever. You know what?" And and so he explained what he said. Except then Kamali came. Uh, Kamali misheard it or misunderstood it, so it became "Porque tu eres negro?" Because tu eres negro," meaning because you are black. <laughs> which is rather different. Suarez, of course, never would have said anything like this. Complains a lot about that. And then says, when he didn't shake Everett's hand, it's because Everett dipped his hand, took the hand away. Everett dipped his hand, and I thought, right, he's not going to shake hands with me, so I just walked past him. Then, then he made the big show of grabbing my arm and looking over to see if Daddy was watching to Ferguson. That is. <laughs> right. Daddy was watching. So I don't think that's going to play well. One final thing quickly, yeah. is that I remember seeing Steve Bruce at Anfield um, being serenaded by the cop with the tune... Steve Bruce, he's got a big fat head. Um, and it was to the tune of Blue Moon, so they were able to really drag out the Bruce. Uh, he's got a big fat head. And they were taunting him. He waved uh, congenially back to them. That's the kind of man Steve Bruce is. Uh, but his big head is full of wise thoughts, I have to say. 
Um, talking after Hull's nil-nil draw at Anfield, uh, Steve Bruce points out, when you sign someone like Mario, isn't Balotelli played okay? You know, missed the sitter in the last minute, but compared to the way he's been playing. When you sign someone like him, you have to understand the one thing they ain't going to do is change. It's a bit like me taking Hatta and Ben Arfa. You have to find a way of getting the best out of them without changing them. Uh, the only reason Hull ended up with a player of Ben Arfa's ability is that he's obviously not everyone's cup of tea. You have to accept that. He says Balotelli's been unfairly criticised because of his body language. It looks like he doesn't care. But he was Liverpool's best player against us, better than Sterling, better than Lallana. It reminds me of the time at United when Eric Cantona turned up to a civic reception in jeans and flip-flops. As captain, I had to ask Fergie on behalf of the rest of the squad whether he was going to let him get away with that. Did he really have to ask that? Was that, was <laughs> it? He says, uh, it turned out that he was. Fergie said, tell the rest of the team if they play like he does, they can all wear jeans and flip-flops too. <laughs> so, Steve Bruce pouring oil and troubled waters. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city... Knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Jonathan Wilson is ready to talk to us a bit more about Man United, Chelsea. Jonathan, uh, just in terms of how Chelsea conspired to lose the couple of points there, did Jose throw the win away by being conservative, do you think? Is that a fair view? Um, maybe. I mean, I did think bringing on Zuma was pretty odd with two minutes to go to you know, to lose Willian, whose ability to carry the ball forward gives you you know, basically if the ball goes to Willian, you 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 save twenty thirty seconds. So uh, that that did seem to be a little odd, and it seemed a little odd even as it happened. Bringing on Mikel, I I, I kind of get that. Um, but you know, Chelsea are miles ahead; they're going to win the league comfortably, but. There have been three games this season, uh, the City game, the United game, and even the Palace game a week before when they've conceded late goals by um, being, I think, needlessly defensive. They invited pressure. Um, now, that's always been Mourinho's way, so, you know, it might just be coincidence. It's, uh, it's difficult, to, difficult to know. I mean, I would have thought that point, especially given the defeat of Manchester City, uh, would actually have been a very satisfactory outcome for Mourinho at the beginning of the game, if not necessarily when the game was going into injury time. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think it was the same with the City game that once the dust cleared and once you've had the you know, got rid of the um, the initial disappointment of conceding the late equaliser, the fact is that they're now six points clear of City, and, and you know they, they're cruising away. They're going to win the title by at least ten points, possibly fifteen. But you know they they could have won nine out of nine this season. As it is, they only won seven, and there's something slightly self-inflicted about that. Well, I mean, you sound extremely confident they're going to win the title by, um, you know, by by a big margin. I mean, they did look well placed to win the title at the midpoint of last season and end up finishing third. <clears throat> Do you not think that there are maybe a couple of weaknesses in that squad? I mean, most obviously up front, where if Diego Costa is unavailable, and, and it's not as though he's he's been in. Um, you know, the whole of his health all season. He's got this apparently chronic hamstring issue um, that they don't actually have, have that much in reserve. I mean, Remy's injured now. If they were to miss Costa for a few games, it's it's quite easy to imagine them dropping points, not necessarily by losing games, but certainly by drawing them. 
I mean, that, that, that is true. That if, you, if you're picking a weakness, it would be that, yeah, if their first two strikers who are both injury-prone are injured, Drogba is clearly not the model he used to be. But, you know, he, he still was effective enough yesterday. You know, he, he got the goal. He had that very good chance towards the end of the first half. Uh, he laid in Azar for the, you know, which, which led to the corner that De Gea saved. So you know he was still, while not at Costa's level, he was still very effective. So they've got three strikers. It's something I have to go pretty badly wrong for for them to be really sort of undone by that. And even if it does go wrong, they've got Schürrle who can play as a false nine. They've got a lot of goals from midfield. I mean, you know, Schürrle, you know, gets goals. William probably doesn't quite get as many goals as he ought to, but he offers a threat. Oscar gets goals. Fabregas gets goals. They've got goals from midfield now. I think that defence will improve as, as time goes by, as, as they, they, their defending got better last season. So, it, it, and it's not just it's not just them. It's it's the other sides. You look at City. I mean, I, I was at the West Ham game on, on Saturday and City were pretty poor. I mean, I, I know that they hit the woodwork twice and I know Adrian made a couple of really good saves, but there's no coherence to that performance. There's a real big problem in the centre of City's midfield. I wouldn't trust United to put a run of games together at the minute. They're defensively, they're not good enough. Arsenal are flaky. Liverpool are flaky. You know, Chelsea don't have to be that good to win the league easily this season, and they are very good. I suppose, you know, Manchester United's target is not really to win the title, whatever their players are saying. I mean, this they're already so far behind Chelsea that it looks uh, ambitious for them. But, I mean, they've only taken two points in the last two matches, but both of them they've scored these late goals and there's been this sense of a, of a more familiar Manchester United um you know, in the last in the last few minutes, the, the unfamiliar part, I suppose, is that they're two one or they're goal down going into those uh, going into those minutes. But do you think that what we've seen from them over the last couple of games is, is evidence of a side getting back to something like you know more what they used to be, or um, or are you looking at the results and the games coming up and thinking this really still isn't good enough? I mean, they're still clearly struggling a little bit, but the, the point is, I think the last five games they've, they've won three and drawn two you know, with the late equalisers. Um, yeah, I think the injury crisis is actually pretty bad. You know, I think it's an unusual set of circumstances that Van Gaal has. I've got little doubt that they'll be fine by the end of the season. Now, by fine, I mean comfortable Champions League qualification. I don't think they've got any chance of challenging for the title. I think, I guess, the possibility they could nick second off City, given how, how poor City have been at times. Uh, but I think realistically. You're looking at them to finish third, and probably third by by some margin over Liverpool or Arsenal. Um, and, you know, when they when they get defensive players back, I'm, I'm sure that organisation will get better, and they've got such firepower um, that, that you know they, they always will pose a threat. That, and I think that's really where it was a little bit baffling what Chelsea did, you know, becoming so defensive uh, or so negative late on. That if you if you take the game to United as they had done for the first eighty or minutes. United's midfield isn't that good. You, you can really put pressure on them. And, and United's passing really slow. It was only when they you know, they really invited forward that, that they, they, they started to look dangerous. So, um, yeah, I think there's only one-third of, of the three things United have to do that's actually right at the moment. Uh, having said that, Fellaini played pretty well. You know, he, I thought he did well uh, against West Brom as well, coming off the bench. So, so there's another option there. There's a bit more physicality, I, I think. I think Van Hal. I think he's right. To, you know, he, he sort of said that he hadn't quite appreciated the physical intensity you needed, and that possibly hadn't focused enough on that. Well, Fellaini, you know, the, the signs of the last game and a half have been that you know, he, he can offer that. So I think slowly things are falling into place at United. Yeah, I mean, do you think Fellaini can is going to be a big player for them in, as the season goes on? Because I have to admit, I was a little bit amused by how badly everything fell apart for him. I mean, it wasn't as though he looked like. <laughs> 
you know, completely useless when he was playing for Everton. I mean, maybe Everton used him in a slightly different way from, um, you know, he hasn't had too many chances to play off the striker for Manchester United. But still, um, he was he was clearly man completely drained of confidence and, and Louis van Gaal seems to have reanimated him to some extent. Yeah, and I think he, you know, the first half, especially yesterday, I thought he had a very, very good game. That he, he'd obviously been getting a specific brief to keep tight to Fabregas, and I didn't actually check the figures at the end of the game. But half time, Fabregas's uh, pass completion rate was, I think, sixty four percent, as opposed to eighty nine percent for the previous eight games. So he's caused a huge drop off there, you know, twenty five percentage points, just by Fellaini getting in his face. Was that I mean, not? Did that uh, not also have something to do with the fact that Fabregas was trying to pass to Diego? Uh, not- yeah, I mean that, that, that's that's fair as well. But still, I mean, a twenty-five drop-off. I think that shows. You could see Fellaini was getting very tight to him, putting pressure on him. Um, and it'd be, I think, it's interesting to see if, if other teams now start to try and get tight to Fabregas to, to to create that, that that pressure on him. But I mean, maybe maybe the case is Fellaini. You have to accept that there are certain limitations to a game, and you have to give him a very specific role. And maybe maybe David Moyes was asking him to do too much that he was. Uh, Asking him to sort of be this destructive player at the back of midfield, but also to sort of create play, whereas you know his role has to be you get tight to him. This is what you're doing today, and you have to kind of give him quite quite limited parameters. Uh, David Blind has had uh, a little bit of time to settle in at Manchester United now. I mean, how uh, this was arguably his first real test against the top team. Um, are you confident that he's uh, he's good enough for that kind of uh, level? Yeah, I mean, the obvious doubt about him is his pace, but I mean, it wasn't really an issue yesterday. Um, you know, of of Chelsea's creators, the only one who was really threatening consistently was Azar, and I think that 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 speaks of how well United as a as a whole played. And Blint is obviously part of that. And I think you know, it's it's not just um, it's not just his passing ability, not just his ability to win the ball. It, it's it's also his positional sense is very good, and that has a knock on effect on other players. That if he's positioning them and they're taking their positions from him. Then, then you know the the, the coherence improves. The, the overall effect is, is is better. So, so yeah, I, mean, I, I think he's just a you know, with, with the caveat that he lacks pace, and, and I guess there is a possibility he could be exposed if if say I don't know something like Raheem Sterling playing at the tip of the diamond might be able to, to expose him. But generally, I, I, I think he's just a very very good player. Um, just on Van Hal himself, I mean, I saw him afterwards. He uh, Graham Soonis was was lavishing compliments on him, saying, "I love listening to this man." Um, he, you know, he he didn't seem to want to talk too much about his special relationship with Jose Mourinho, um, but he made it pretty clear that he wasn't he wasn't really happy with the with the draw at home to Chelsea. He thought they should have done it better. The question had to do actually with something that Sam Allardyce was saying. No, you were at the West Ham match. Um, I think Sam Allardyce had a had a little spiel about how there were some managers out there, such as Jose Mourinho, Alex Ferguson, and Sam Allardyce. <laughs> who look? Who look at the opposition, and uh, you know decide what kind of team they're up against, and then adjust, make a, adjustments to how their team's going to play. Uh, and then there were your other managers, your Arsene Wenger's, your uh, Brendan Rodgers's, and your Manuel Pellegrini's, who just look at their own team uh, and their approach is, um, you know, it's the game's about us. We're just going to go out there and play our game. Uh, and Sam, I think, put in a little stinger like. Um, that's why it's easy to, um, you know, th- these managers can be beaten. What camp do you think Louis van Gaal falls into? I think van Gaal's, I mean, I think he's, it's fascinating the way his career's gone. I mean, it should be said that Allardyce on Saturday, that I, I don't have ever seen a man looking quite so pleased with himself. What about when Sam Allardyce masterminded the 3-0 destruction of Tottenham at White Hart Lane? Uh, I thought well, he- yeah, OK. I mean, 
<laughs> but he's competing with himself for this award. Did anyone... Did, next did, to a massive kind of churn of cream had just been knocked over and just kind of <laughs> relishing, kind of lapping it all up. I did, you see well, him sort of cleaning his whiskers as he was kind of telling us about his own tactical genius. But he had, been, he had also been kissed by Russell Brand uh, just moments before that press conference, an event which seemed to leave him literally overwhelmed with happiness. <laughs> he he well, was struggling to collect his thoughts after Russell Brand had kissed him on the cheek. Well, perhaps Russell Brand was, was also trying to lick the cream off Sam's whiskers. Maybe, maybe that's what was going on. Uh, did, did, anyone, <laughs> did anyone mention at any point that in, there was a game, I think, I'm pretty sure it was last season, where Manchester City scored so many goals against West Ham that Ed and Dzeko forgot the score? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no. I mean, I, 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 but I guess Sam would say, well, you know, that's the improvement that he he's brought about this season by by bringing in the players he's brought in and by changing things. Um, I mean, sorry, so to go back to the question about Van Gaal, yeah. um, I, I think the early part of his career he very much was about setting his team, you know, laying his team out and making pretty minimal changes. Um, there's, uh, there's actually there's a very good book called I think it's called Louis Van Gaal and the Philosophy of the Ajax Coaches where there's a whole chapter on how he set up the game for the 95 European Cup final against Milan. And there's a fascinating section on how he changed things at half-time. So, I th- you know, he'd always played that sort of 3-4-3, 4-3-3 hybrid. But, he, you know, he would, um, uh, you know, he, he would adjust that with, within, you know, quite a limited range. I think recently, you know, as time's gone by, I think particularly when he got the RZ job, his recognition of the limitations of those players made him much more prepared to make more radical changes. And I think, you know, we, we've seen that in terms of, you know, the, the Dutch playing the back three, which is a, a very, you know, very strange thing for him to do. So, you know, the, the guy was sort of 63, and he suddenly, two months before the World Cup, decides, well, I'm going to play a formation I've never played before. I mean, he would say that his philosophy is unaltered, that, you know, the, the shape is, is a minor part of that, and I, I guess that makes sense. Um, so I think Van Gaal's become much more prepared to change things according to the opposition. But I, I'm interested as well that um, Allardyce picked out Brendan Rodgers as somebody who, who doesn't change. Yeah, he didn't opposition. really seem to fit there, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think Rodgers does does change quite a lot. All now, the time. Maybe, yeah. maybe Allardyce's point is that it's actually quite cosmetic with Rodgers. But even that game when, when Liverpool lost to West Ham this season, yeah, they switched, Liverpool switched to, to three at the back. Um, well, it's before After about time, 20 minutes, yeah. Sort of 35 minutes or so. Um, to try and to try and um, negate the space that, that Stuart Downing was getting, so I, 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 I take his point about Pellegrini and I take his point about Wenger. Absolutely, I think maybe with Rogers he's been a, a little bit harsh, and maybe there's some sort of, as there always is with Sam, some sort of internal game of politics going on there. Yeah, I, I know Brendan Rogers has been has been grouped in with a couple of. Uh... I don't know if Sam thinks that people like Arsene Wenger and Manuel Pellegrini are overrated, but it is notable that uh, they come from the kind of countries where the managers who, who get offered the plum jobs in English football tend to come from. Uh, the other thing, the book, incidentally, that you mentioned was The Coaching Philosophies of Louis van Gaal and the Ajax Coaches by Henny Cormelink, uh, which people can find pretty easy on Amazon. Um, just one other question, which is to do with another book um, recently released in new editions, Alex Ferguson's biography, uh, he's put in some stuff about David Moyes. Seems disappointed in how in how Moyes performed, and and to find it quite insulting, this suggestion that was put about by certain people that he had maybe left Moyes with a squad which wasn't quite up to uh, up to defending its Premier League title. What do you think of Ferguson's uh, more recent comments? Well, I mean, there's I think the weirdest thing there is his claim that he had had no say over, you know, who got the job after him. I mean, David Moyes himself said he was. 
he was in a shopping centre and got a phone call from Ferguson telling him to go around to Ferguson's house. And he had that panic because he, you know, he was wearing jeans and wasn't sort of dressed properly for meeting meeting royalty. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Ferguson was pretty involved in that decision. I mean, it might not actually have been him having the final say, but I mean, he was it was I saw it, on the board of that decision. It was him who, who actually made the approach. So. I saw it pointed out. I think I think it may, might have been by Daniel Taylor over the weekend that the Glazer family had put out a statement shortly after saying, you know, it's been a short search for a new manager. Sir Alex was very firm in his recommendation. Yeah, quite. And, and, and all the stuff about he didn't know about Italy. He read about it in the papers or when he was getting a plane somewhere. Well, none of that makes any sense because it, yeah, the whole world had known the day, you know, he came, I think the story came out at two o'clock on a Monday afternoon. Yeah. It's and a bank, a bank, he didn't a bank know he was on the Tuesday morning. Well, that suggests that, you know, he doesn't have a radio, he doesn't have a television, nobody speaks to him. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just nonsense. It's clearly just not true. Um, so, I mean, uh, I guess he's protect, protecting his legacy, protecting, protecting his, you know, um, his judgment by saying that he wasn't really involved in that. But, I think that's pretty strange, and I think the issue of the squad is is fascinating because I, I think I think you know a lot of people, and I, I guess I include myself in this. You know, suddenly you looked at that squad and you thought, well, yeah, there's some good young players. It's probably kind of that's a good squad to take over. That there's there's experienced players there, but there's kids coming through. That it doesn't require a major overhaul. That you know, there's the, the senior players can 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 help with a, a level of continuity. And I, I think actually what one of the things that went wrong with for, for Moyes was that the senior players. Certainly, people like Rio Ferdinand never seem to have had any faith in him, and that actually ended up undermining him. So, yeah, the issue of the squad, I don't think, is a simple one. Uh, but in, in given the changes that have been wrought in by Van Gaal, I, I think, in retrospect, you know, there pretty clearly were were flaws in the squad. Okay, Jonathan, thanks maybe, for joining us this morning. Cheers, thank you. Hair dryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. This is uh, Ferguson. This updated version of Ferguson's book, mm-hmm. uh, combined with his uh, just his need to. Why is he so worried? Uh, he's, he he was. He seems very. Concerned about him being linked with the David Moyes move entirely. I suppose, who am I to judge Alex Ferguson? But it just seems like a needless uh, addition to to the Ferguson story at all, Trevor. I think because, I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, the the biggest one probably being the the deceleration of his life since uh, he, I mean, 18 months ago he was manager of Manchester United. Now he's... A retired guy. He's got more time to think about this kind of stuff. But he ha- he's used to being busy all the time and making decisions all the time. And now he doesn't have... He's kind of twiddling his thumbs to an extent. I mean, there's only... You know, he's, he's obviously going around doing events, turning up at stuff, still faded where, everywhere he goes. But he doesn't have responsibility, involvement, day-to-day, you know, power, which is which he's literally spent his whole... It's a, it's a big thing to get used to, that sudden absence of, of that. So... What he has, what does he have to do? All he really has to do, I suppose, is jealously watch over his own legend. You know, his burnish his own myth, and he sees people talking about him, talking him down, saying that it, he he left the place in a bit of disarray. Well, I didn't, I didn't leave it in disarray. It's not as though he's ever been shy of standing up for himself anyway. When he feels people are, are having a bit of go at him, so I'm not really that surprised that. Yeah, that, you know, I mean, I'm sure Ferguson's had lots of time to think about what happened with Moyes, and he's probably managed to persuade himself that it wasn't his decision. <laughs> he's probably managed to, to sort of, um, 
he's thought about it so many times that the version that exists in his head now bears no relation to what actually occurred yeah. at the time. But you know, um, he's always he's always going to look out for himself. Miguel Delaney was at Spurs to see them losing at home to Newcastle. Miguel, their fourth defeat in nine games. Uh, what what went wrong? Do you think? Um, I think mainly um, they were caught cold in the second half, but I don't think they were caught cold because basically it wasn't just them caught cold because no one, no one watching that, or no one watching the first half anyway, could really have thought that was coming. They were in complete control. It looked like absolutely nothing was happening uh, from Newcastle. So I suppose it's kind of a mixture of two things. Newcastle kind of just upped their game and once... Uh, they'd got an equaliser at a game, I think it was either six or seven seconds into the uh, second half that we didn't get uh, quite a precise agreement on, on the minute, on the second of it yesterday. But uh, once that happened, it was as if kind of Spurs just fell apart. And I, I think that, that does show that, like, you could, as, when you watch Spurs, you can see the kind of Pochettino idea, you can see what he's trying to do. Even yesterday, we're kind of counting the amount of times they played those, uh, like they used to do a lot at Southampton that kind of long curled ball out in the middle of the pitch, out to the wings and behind the opposition defence. So there is something there. But at the same time, it's as if a lot of the players don't really fit. Um, like, I mean, from going to Spurs a bit, you, do, you, do, you hear a few stories behind the scenes. And the suggestion for the moment is basically that while all the players are actually very impressed with Pochettino and the way he plays, he's not overly impressed with a lot of them. And I, th- I, I think there's kind of something, I suppose it's possibly no, no one's fault other than the boards, but a lot of this squad, e- e- even players that only came last year, are slightly, they're already kind of conditioned the idea that this is a, tea, this is a club where long-term principles aren't really allowed to bed down. And there's almost like, you get at so many of these types of clubs, you know, this, this idea that, well, the players will be here a lot for longer than the manager. Yeah. Um, I, I saw Sp- as Pochettino started talking about... Um Rebuilding? Does he say there's an extensive restructuring program? Uh, he didn't. He was actually oddly relaxed uh, after the game. It's it's one thing, one thing about um, Pochettino, if I haven't covered him a bit, is that he's kind of, uh, even in his own language in Spanish, when he does talk about he's kind of free of jargon, um, I suppose in contrast to kind of some other uh, managers of his profile in the league at the moment. And he was really relaxed yesterday. But the one thing he did say was that... Uh, I suppose it's got a bit of traction that the mentality the players has to prove. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, if he tries to bring in a lot more of his own men in January. I think the club was a little bit uh, resistant in the summer, particularly maybe after the expenditure of previous summers. So it was a bit of a wait and see, and they they, they maybe wanted to see whether he would kind of come. I mean, he he's kind of famous for immediately imposing a style on players. I mean, he did it at, at Southampton. There was a kind of transformation there very quickly. But Spurs, he was a bit more resistant to that, and I think he will want to bring in his own men. The problem there is that Tottenham have just signed so many players uh, in recent times. I mean, a lot of people would look at them and say, well, the problem is that they've just signed all these players that the squad, there's no team there, there's no identity there. But that's exactly, it, 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 it's the problem of a, of a club like that. They're, they're signing all these different players that have different specifications for different managers. So it's just kind of, like it's the ultimate kind of patchwork effort. There's you know a, a little bit of everything, but nothing conducive to so trying how, to. How is how is Pochettino bringing in a bunch of new players going to solve that problem? I mean, well, well, could he? What about him trying to do a bit of coaching? Well, I think that's what he is trying, but he's he's found so far that players don't suit his system. I, again, even if they even if they do want to submit, there is as I said, there's just this kind of almost unsaid 
resistance to it to, to really kind of de- go deep with it. Whereas in Southampton, I suppose he had he had players who were just immediately willing to buy into it. Kind of players maybe more more ready to be molded. Whereas it, you know even a lot a lot of players at Spurs would have kind of maybe come in. I mean, Tim Sherwood for all the criticism he got last season, a lot of that criticism. Well, his record was, was his record like, was was second to none. But, but, but one of the things he said was to question the, the mentality of certain players in the dressing room, and I think there there is a ring, there is truth to it. I mean, yeah. and ultimately, I mean, because I, I don't think this is a case. Like, I mean, we discussed the last season when Moyes was going on last season with United, you know, about the need to buy players. The only problem there is, well, need to buy players to do what? The question came like, what are you actually offering here, other than, you know bringing in players are you offering coaching whereas that's not the case with Pochettino I think he is offering coaching but at the same time you know he still needs something on the other side yeah. well look we haven't we haven't talked about this uh, yet Miguel but you said that what happened was Spurs uh, strutted out uh, for the second half like the arrogant little cockerels that they are <laughs> and to be swept away caught cold by um, by a resurgent Newcastle side it- so what had happened in there this is Alan Pardew um, in this team, we fight for that inch. Uh, his Newcastle team, <laughs> his Newcastle team went out and fought and got the two goals and uh, cold cocked Tottenham. Yeah, well, I, I suppose as Roy Keane would might put it, it was uh, a bit Tottenham on one side. On the other side, I think it was um, a classic bit of Pardew, really. I suppose Pardew at his best. I mean, one, one of the things I, if you look through Pardew's career, one of the repeated problems is, well, and one of the initial strengths is he finds a way to make a team work. Very early on, they're excellent to watch, and they, they, they do quite well. They happen at West Ham, they happen at Newcastle, in particular in, in 2011-12. I, think it, I don't think it was insignificant at Newcastle that they had Demba Ba. Then just as teams were starting to figure them out that season, they brought in Papi Cisse, so they suddenly had another option. But it's, it's after that, when, when teams kind of know how to play Pardew teams, that he struggles. I think that's been the case. But um, and they become what they did look in the second half, yes, or in the first half yesterday. They're not actually that bad, but there's not really much happening. And then, so so last season, but or yesterday, well, he, he admitted that, um, and he made sure to uh, to imprint that dis- despite what they looked at at halftime, it was it was his uh, his rocket that uh, <laughs> sent him flying. I can't believe he did. I can't believe he did that seriously. I mean, but, the thing about Pardew recently is is. Uh, it's been interesting to watch him because he's just looked like such a broken man, you know. Sort of, well, no, I don't want to say broken man. Did, did Robbie Savage get in trouble for, for saying something like that about him? But he has looked unusually humble and humbled. Yeah. Uh, is is a bit of the old strut starting to return to, to Alan Pardew so so soon after the upturn in Newcastle's fortunes? Oh, immediately. He didn't like anything. You could see he was he was purring yesterday. He, he strutted through the, through the kind of that White Hart Lane, uh, that, that White Hart Lane media room. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely back. <laughs> um, to be fair to him, he's, I mean, because even, I suppose, the way they did it, it was just so simple. And although, again, I suppose this is, this is what management is to expose the other team's weakness. And it, that Spurs line, it's high, it's quite flat. So straight from kickoff, an easy ball caught them out. Then for the second goal, um, you know, easy cross and header. We're, we're not exactly talking about complex football here. Hmm. And that's the thing about Pardew. Uh, I mean, he's probably as, shall we say, confident as Allardyce and Rodgers in that sense. But unlike Allardyce and Rodgers, he doesn't really like to go into the same detail as to as to how he's won. I mean, I think we've said it on the show before yeah. that um, I don't think I've ever seen two managers like Allardyce and Rodgers who, when they've won a game, they just love to talk about the mechanics of how they did it. I mean, I was in Allardyce's Monday section. Yeah, we, 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 we've just been talking about with, with John. <laughs> even more self-satisfied than Alan Bardew? 
Yes, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. Um, even he, you know, he he started to uh, impart advice to the defending champions after the game. Yeah. On Saturday, oh, you know, go, saying, on. go on. <laughs> saying that they uh, they leave Mengal exposed, and then at the end of that, after this kind of you know two or three hundred words of flourish about uh, of how, how City's structure isn't right and how they need to kind of protect these new players and how advice that Sir Alex had given him. Um, <laughs> He, he didn't. He didn't add Fergie, the top man, which he did the last time he spoke about that. Uh, spoke about Fergus in that kind of way, but then he goes, "But and we exposed them brilliantly." Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I suppose he he had plenty of time to look at Manchester City last season when they were uh, <laughs> repeatedly thrashing West Ham. They got a few couple of extra games against uh, uh, against West Ham in the Carlin Cup, which maybe enabled Sam to work them out a bit. But could be, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. Can you pinpoint a problem with Manchester City beyond the ones that Sam Allardyce talked about? I mean, the thing, when they lose a game like this, it's it should be a surprise, and yet it's not a surprise. Well, yeah. and First of all, I suppose, in, um, in kind of mocking Allardyce, he should, he should deserve praise for the type of football they put out. I mean, I think what you can say about this game, I think some of both teams, is that, I mean, you couldn't have imagined saying this basically at any point in the last three years, but for long stretches of that game, West Ham's football and Allardyce team's football was better than City's. It was really exciting to watch. And I think in that, it, this is a very simplistic thing, but I think it's absolutely true. They basically just showed a bit more edge, a bit more anger, a bit more... Um, like They were first to everything. It's as easy as that. And I think this could be a wider issue with City. Like I was, Danny Taylor did a, did a column last week in which he referenced um, uh, Brian Clough's kind of requirement for a player and how you win, which basically m- means a need for bastards. Mm. And you kind of you look at City, and they almost kind of lack that edge. I mean, yes, they have some individuals, but as a team, even last season when they won the title, they kind of, to a certain degree, coasted it. They they rarely kind of dug in in one game. I think like, the stat's been said all weekend is that once the, I think they went behind in thirty six games, and they've only come back to win in one. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be related to the issue with, with this squad of. They're kind of good and they're kind of playing towards the title, but defending it when there's kind of a different sort of challenge, teams approaching a different way, it's as if they just don't they don't have that same kind of fight. And they were just so lax for 75 minutes yesterday. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's helped by the fact that um, Sam Arlo seems to have signed some really good players. I mean, this guy, Sacco, um, just kind of could be out for a month, which is the only... Oh there. well, that's, well that's, that, that, that could allow Andy Carroll back in. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how Andy Carroll goes. One of the things, Miguel, I believe you. Uh, I believe you were hanging out with Roy Keane uh, over the weekend. Um, <laughs> how, how did how did that go? He was he was doing a gig over in London at the um, the Sp- London Sports Writing Festival. Yeah, yeah, I was hanging out with one description. Uh, oh, you were watching you were watching El Clasico in the in the Great Man's Company, I believe. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, I got I got in for the last uh, twelve or fifteen minutes of the Clasico, uh, so you know I was actually quite looking forward. Well, first of all, Keane was. Uh, Fully focused on the game, as I suppose he might be. He, he didn't kind of look up, look up once, but he was really intensely watching it. I think the only the only time he spoke was when uh, Benzema scored. And he was brilliant, yeah. but uh, you know I haven't haven't missed the goals. I was uh, hoping that I get to see them, um, but the second the game finished, he'd switch channels over to over he, to Swansea he Leicester. Ha- he had the remote control. Oh yeah, he had a clasp into his hands. Uh, and <laughs> but he did, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't even a second to spare. Straight on to more football. <laughs> he did do. He did a gig afterwards, which I believe went well. Uh, did he have anything um, interesting to say in that? Uh, you know, he was. He was. He was. He was excellent. Like, um, well, he was above Atlas, I suppose. And it's something people have said a lot throughout this whole kind of uh, book tour. Is uh, 
how funny it was yeah. um, and how can I willingly engage it. And I think it's even interesting how um, when, he, when he's saying something that could be that in stark print or in kind of, if you just hear the words, it could be sort of really cold. But there's a, there is always that kind of, uh, that element of mischief about it. I think you can tell usually when he kind of purses his lips after he says something yeah. that he's, uh, he's not being entirely serious. So is there, were there any examples of that last night? Or Someone, some Ipswich fan got up and asked him about how um, after D- Damien Delaney left Ipswich, Delaney talked about how he'd lost his love for the game. He goes, Roy, what did you do to him? Uh, I came immediately to well, you know, it's, it's not like I was, uh, he got out of his car every morning and I was abusing him straight away. But let's not forget, Damien Delaney, uh, he, co- he cost me a lot of goals too. But this is this kind of a running team through the night, and then it end. When he's talking about his ending, it talks about kind of what, he, what he's doing in management, and he thinks he did well for all the clubs he served for: United, Celtic, Forest, um, Sunderland. Then as a manager, except that Ipswich, he's lamenting a bit. But then he goes, but then you look at it. I mean, uh, yep, last game, just couldn't we, we just couldn't get the wins. That was our problem. Last game, Forest one nil, Delaney OG. <laughs> <laughs> um, there wasn't any more awkwardness about regarding Ferguson, was it? Because I see Ferguson just seems to pop up every. He, he seems to do an event every evening now as well, and it's just it's, it's almost ludicrous spectacle of these two yeah. men going around doing <laughs> doing Q and A sessions. But, but, but not not really. Well, Keane was put on a Ferguson's thing last night. I heard it wasn't the sellout anyway, and uh, really didn't, didn't come up once. Um, no, no, apparently not. Well, what was he? Was um, he? I was, was, I was he offered a ticket late on, which I which I couldn't take because I was, I was working at Spurs. But um, yeah, Ferguson came up a bit. I mean, Keane again—he didn't make. He actually made a point that, you know, the headlines go out there when he criticised. Even he mentioned the Robson thing last week. He said, you know, what doesn't get reported is at the same time I was speaking quite warmly of uh, Robson, and he actually went on about a five-minute little speech on Saturday about how he would consider Robson one of the primary influences in his career alongside Stuart Pearce, mm-hmm. and he did have this little kind of interest. I mean, one of the things about Keane and all this as well, I think, and I think it's a, it's a one of the strengths of both books that I think is two ghostwriters particularly brought out, when he's talking about kind of specific kind of dynamics of football or kind of the psychology of it, he was talking about how, you know, when he met the United team and all the characters there were, and Robson just looking at him, and there was this kind of unsaid thing between them, you're here to take my place, and you know that. Mm. But despite that, that Robson was quite a formative, and he, was quite, he spoke quite warm, despite kind of them having this little public set too this week. He, he, he was talking about Ferguson again, and how he said it's not reported enough, or it's not reported that he also has a very good thing to say about Ferguson. He can't fault him as a manager in any way, but he did. He did repeat that line actually. Um, you know, power and control over me as a player, I completely accept that. Power and control over me outside that, no way. And then he talked about how um, you know people say maybe you should kept kept quiet, kept a certain bit of class. That there comes a point when you can't. And there's something else he touched on. This isn't. This wasn't from his point of view related to Ferguson, he was talking about it in the book in general, but I think it's, Keane says, I find it very difficult to lie, which I think is, is absolutely true. I think, I mean, there's, there's that scene in Sopranos where uh, Hesh Rabkin is talking about Tony's mother. There was no inter- interlocutor between brain and mouth. I think that's the case with Keane, that, uh, you know, he just can't stop it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that his, him being honest is the absolute whole truth of every situation, but I think it's definitely a factor that he, and it gets him into trouble. And I think leads to some unfair perceptions of bitterness. Whereas Fergus, I think, you know, as tends to be the nature of these supremely um, powerful autocratic figures in their field, they will, I mean, even what, he, what he's saying over the last few weeks, about, last few days about Moyes, I mean, yeah. who's he trying to kid? 
Right. Uh, well, we'll leave it there, Miguel. Thanks, mate, for joining us today. No problem again. All right, that's, that's good manners. <laughs> players have played when they're still in the squad I wonder did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job no absolutely not no 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 I've seen none of their business you know what I was going to do it's a ridiculous question <laughs> <laughs> we want to win football matches nothing to tame you know some sort of animal you know what I mean um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do he makes me look like Mother Teresa you know he's um, I don't know we want to win football matches we've had a lovely few days the hotel's been lovely Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Oh, that was a lovely, vivid description of watching football with Roy Dean. Yeah. And Miguel there. <laughs> what would you do, you know? So so you come in, you see Roy Dean there. Small, you know, it's a typical just room. TV on the wall. Uh... Few tables and chairs around the place. Everyone's watching the match. Do you say, "Oh, uh, I'll tell you what"? You know that's a that's a fairly special pass by James Rodriguez there into the path of Benzema. Roy Keane, wouldn't you say, Mister <laughs> Keane? <laughs> what would you even say? As in, you want to try to impress him with your football knowledge? Well, do you do him. you try and talk to him, or do you think Roy Keane's watching the match? He's he's concentrating fully on the match. Does he want? Like arguably a normal person would want, you know, and, and you know, Mr. Joe blogs every day. Man might like to have a chat with the people who are there watching the match with him. It's a difficult one to judge, isn't it? Because sometimes you wouldn't, you don't even want to have a chat. You're just saying, just let me concentrate on the match. Actually, that's probably that's the decision you'd end up making, isn't it? You'd yeah. Say, he's watching the match. He doesn't want to be bothered. I'd leave him alone. But maybe he does. Maybe he's like, maybe he's sitting there thinking, you know, why doesn't this person? Yeah, I've constructed this wall around myself. Yeah, just to I have, my, own I have feelings, my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm a rock, I'm an island. What I would probably do if I was in this situation is I'd wait until halftime, but not the first part of halftime because Roy Keane's a cup of tea at halftime, man. Yeah. If ever there was one. Well, Roy Keane is making himself a nice, strong cup of tea at halftime in the first ad break, but I'm assuming we're not watching a match on the BBC here. I mean, yeah. most, most broadcasters carrying games these days will have two ad breaks in, yeah. in halftime. Secondly, well, he wants to watch the analysis. Then I get him in that three three minute period before the, he started the second. The second, so you second leave him for the first time. Yeah, I leave him, make his cup of tea. Mm, oh, of course, do yeah. what he needs to do, and then and then analysis. Yeah. So yeah. hear what Sunis is saying. Yeah. Maybe maybe showily disagree with Sunis. Oh, I'll tell you what, Roy, I'm not having that. <laughs> you know, when, when Why do you have to speak with that accent? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a football voice. man. I'm trying to. I'm hoping that he's going to respect Whoa. me as a football. Tell man. you what. Oh, I'll tell you what. Um, I don't know. Uh, I might, I might just be tempted to say, "Let's." I'll tell you what, let's leave him to enjoy the football in peace. I'll tell you what, Ken. <laughs> let's round up the show uh, on that rather strange note. Thanks very much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, and uh, yeah, just uh, check out the website as well, secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.